Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3pm to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. Let me just add one more welcome to those that have already been given. Really good to see each of you this afternoon. Uh, We are studying this book of the Bible called Ephesians over the course of the summer, something that we'll be busy with in June, July, and August. Uh, We'll even finish up in uh, September. And just a few weeks ago, uh, we began the journey last week. Uh, David Brown, one of our elders, continued to open up the meaning of this book for us and help us see what was going on. We remember that the people who first received what we read this afternoon, they lived in a city uh, called Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. Uh, The city, uh, before they were ready to hear something like this, uh, was full of idol worship. They made uh, little statues to other gods, and they built their whole life around worshiping uh, other things than the one true living God. Uh, Paul shows up. He establishes a word ministry. Uh, accompanying the word ministry are many powerful signs and wonders, and people come to faith. But it's important for us to be able to listen to the entire book. I'd say especially these words this afternoon, and just remember the people who, who they once were. The people who first heard these words, uh, they were involved in outright idolatry. They worshipped another God. They lived another way. The shape of their entire life was about something else entirely. Um, In fact, uh, you know, it would have been interesting to really consider what would it be like uh, to to be in a city that actually had an organized state religion uh, to this temple goddess called Artemis. And accompanying the worship of Artemis was thousands of male and female temple cult prostitutes that every evening would come down from the temple and would make their way through the streets. You imagine, what would it be like for those individuals to come to faith? What would it be like for those individuals to have to learn who God is? With some of that as a lens, they no doubt need what Paul was offering here. They they need this this reminder. They need this invitation. For us, we're going to see it's a prayer for spiritual enlightenment to be able to see what God's doing because they might look around and they might think, man, where I am and what's going on, it kind of looks like it's always looked. But Paul's saying, no, 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 you need God to open up your eyes where you can really see what's happening in here. We need this in London today as well. We could be tempted to walk around London today just thinking to ourselves, oh, well, doesn't look like much is happening here. You could look at your own life and you could think, oh, it doesn't look like much, much benefit of values happening in here today. No, if God would answer this prayer, maybe if we could learn to pray this prayer that we're going to see this afternoon, God could indeed open up the eyes that are in our heart and we could see and experience who God is and what he's doing all around us. So with that, let me just put this to you, just a little thought exercise for us to get into it today. Imagine living life without one of your senses and you can pick them, right? Um, Just imagine what it would be like to go through your days without being able to hear without being able to taste, uh, maybe for our purposes this afternoon, uh, without being able to see. 
Uh, anyone, I, I, I wear glasses, uh, wear them more than I used to as well. Um, anyone in here struggle with eyesight in any way, need contacts, prescriptions, anything like that? Yeah. I mean, you, you can kind of relate to this, like what it would be like to go through life not being able to see. Uh, one of my heroes in the faith, uh, a British guy named Leslie Newbigin, uh, he spent his last days retiring it out just south in Hearn Hill. And uh, in his last days, he actually lost his eyesight. And uh, in his biography, in his writings, he talks about how he actually depended on other people to bring him food and other people to come and read books to him. What would it be like if you were to lose your sight? A whole sense, a whole way that you make sense of your surroundings, it was just to be gone, taken from you for one reason or another. I think it's helpful that we can kind of lock on to that and hang on to it just a little bit because that's part of what Paul's saying right here in this letter. He's saying you need this prayer, you need these truths because without them, it would be like you're alive, you're functioning, but without this prayer, you would be making your way around town as if your eyes weren't open. No doubt you would be alive, no doubt you would be here, but there would be something about your existence that it would be lacking. There'd be in a way to interact with your surroundings that you wouldn't have. So Paul writes to them, if you even draw your eyes to it with me, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, he says, I keep asking, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Look at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. For some of us, depending on our theological background and tradition that we make the way in the room this afternoon, this is like spot on. This is the kind of stuff that we grew up on. We're very comfortable with this. Like we're here for this. For others of us, depending on where we come from, some of this might even feel a bit scandalous. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like we're praying for like spiritual enlightenment. Yeah, we are. Like we're here for this. We'll even get into some other bits of the prayer itself. When Paul's saying, I want you to know this, I want you to know the immense worth that you are to God. And for those of us who might come from more conservative, reformed-leaning theological traditions, we might be sitting here with our high understanding of sin, and we might be sitting here this afternoon thinking, whoa, whoa, there's no way. Like, I can actually think, and I should actually be led by the Spirit of God to reflect on my value, my intrinsic worth to God. And it's like, absolutely, we can and we should so this is a prayer, my dear friends. This is a prayer that the readers of this prayer would have spiritual sight. It's that we have eyes in our hearts. We have sensory abilities in our hearts. And it's that those eyes would be opened up and we would have spiritual sight. But you can feel the contrast coming in then. There's two types of knowledge. Indeed, throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament alike, two different tracks for talking about knowledge running through Scripture. Uh, one is this idea of knowing with the mind. It's when you know facts, you know doctrines. Um, you could know different things about a historical figure. You could know the place they were born. You could know the dates in which they lived. You could know the schools that they attended to. You could know prominent speeches they gave or songs that they wrote. This is a way to know things about someone with the mind. In a spiritual sense, there's indeed ways to know things about God with the mind. It's not a bad thing. It's a necessary thing. We prize it. We cherish it. But the Bible, specifically this part of Scripture, is saying something more to us, my friends. It's saying there's a different way to know God. It's saying there's a knowledge of God 
that isn't a head knowledge. There's a knowledge of God that's a heart knowledge. And when the Apostle Paul writes this prayer right here, he's not using the head knowledge word. He's using the heart knowledge word. He's saying, I pray that in your heart, you would know, you would feel, you would experience these things to be true. So then, for some of us, then a gap must be traversed. The gap from our head down to our hearts. Think about it. You, you can know the fact of honey being sweet. You can know it. You could read about it in books all day long. But you will learn more in having a drop of honey on the tip of your tongue for 10 seconds than you could ever learn from 10 books. There's two different ways to know things. You can know a prominent person, you can follow them on social media, you can read about them in the news, but no matter how much you know about Taylor Swift, you'll never be one of those inside people that genuinely know Taylor Swift. There's a Hebrew word that talks about this second kind of knowledge that Paul's onto here. You've read it many times, it sounds kind of weird when you hear it, it's the word for sexual intimacy. The way the Hebrew text describes two people, a man and a woman coming together in marriage, it says they knew each other. Well, indeed, they had lots of head knowledge facts about each other, but there was a moment when they connected with each other and they experienced, with the, they experienced one another, to which the Hebrew text can say, it's appropriate to say, they knew each other. Paul in this prayer is saying, I pray that you will know God in a few specific ways, and he's dealing in the same terms. As I was uh, writing this on Thursday, it came, I just came, came to a sense that for some of us in this room, our, our knowledge and our relationship with God is such that it's primarily head and not enough heart for some of us. Whereas there's some in the room, we're, we're so much heart, we could do with some logical organization in the head. I mean, let's, let's be equal opportunity offenders here, but when we think about what's available here in the text, if you feel like your relationship with God feels a bit distant, and if you feel like your understanding and your way of, of knowing and relating to God feels a bit foreign to you, could it be that you have primarily a head knowledge of God, but what's happening in the head needs to drop down, it needs to make its way, it needs to warm your heart? Pastoral question for us. So what happens? It's the difference between doctrines that, that inform the mind and doctrines that delight the soul. It's when the understanding that's in our mind makes its way into our heart and it bursts open and we're left with delight and joy and a sense of wonder that God loves us in this way. So here's just one more way to say it before we get into the prayer. And I, I do think it's helpful just to press this just a little more with us this afternoon because it's possible to come around this and even want to dismiss the opening bit and say, yeah, that's how other people relate to God. Other people have more of an experiential relationship with God, but I'm more of an intellectual person. Just kind of give me the facts. I want you to journey with me just a bit more, though. It is possible to know facts about Jesus without experiencing Jesus. Think about Judas, one of the twelve. Think about how this must have gone. He hung around Jesus for three years without developing a personal heart knowledge, a personal love and like life-to-life -life dependence on Jesus. I submit to you that Jesus didn't begin his journey as a hypocrite. He began as an interested individual who wanted to be near him. Jesus probably didn't begin his journey as a secret agent. He believed Jesus told the truth. There's something about him. He's like, I just want to be around him. Gosh, that guy's really insightful. But over time, that head knowledge without a heart connection 
A division, no doubt, set in. The eyes of his heart were never enlightened, so his knowledge of Jesus never turned to a personal trust or a personal love of Jesus, which actually led to his rebellion in the end. My friends, could it be that most of the spiritual problems that you and I are carrying this afternoon, it actually comes from a lack of this second sort of knowledge. We know facts about God, of course. Like we could sit down, we could take a little theological exam this afternoon. Like, I mean, most of us were scoring above 75, 80%. I mean, we're getting through it. But when it comes to that day-to-day living and feeling and abiding sort of knowledge, how are we? The idea of you ever felt dry or cold spiritually. It's the idea that you have something in your head that's just not clicking in your heart, right? If I could just reflect on this. Um, as your pastor, one of my darkest spiritual seasons of my life was my second year as a seminary student. Studying doctrines about God. I mean, my, my world was the Christian scriptures, the history books, and ideas about them. So surely it's not one of those scenarios to where just more information will cut it. Uh, my, my friends, I, I, I was like sequestered in the cloister of knowledge. Like I had access to Scripture all day. I just read books and books and books about God. It wasn't, I wasn't even doing I was going hard. And it was one of the darkest seasons of my heart. Because there's a way to know things in your head without it really connecting and becoming ignited in your heart to where it's a fire that burns within you. So maybe you, you know what it's like to be bored of Jesus. You know what it's like to be one of his followers, but to feel no passion in your life. Maybe you know what it is to go through the motions. Maybe you know what it is to have people that spend a couple of hours during the week preparing a way to lead us in song and just to sit there and feel unmoved by it all. I would say if any of that relates to you, it's very possible we have a head knowledge of God that just hasn't connected and become a fire in our hearts. And you think, like, we, we don't just need more, you know? Sometimes the way we try to get ourselves out of this rut, it's like, oh, well, just give me one more book. Give me one more podcast. Give me one more blog. Give me one more sermon. The, just more information doesn't always do it. The location of the information seems to be the difference maker, Yeah? Because our God himself, he is ever satisfying. He lacks nothing. And I will never be able to stand here and to share a few more truths about him with you that will just all of a sudden unlock the laziness that we feel in our hearts. God's going to have to do it. Like Paul prays, Spirit, I pray that you'll enlighten them. That's what we want. A theologian named E.W. Bullinger says it like this. This is what it's like to walk around with head knowledge without heart knowledge. He says, instead of breathing this life-giving air of heaven, it's like we're walking around with the windows of our hearts closed and the doors shut and there's asphyxiated from their own exhalation. They are breathing over and over again, but it's their own breath from which all vitality is gone. Ever feel that? Or feel like you're, you're in this thing, but you're just going around and kind of the, the smell of the Christian life is your own breath. Maybe it's time for the doors to open up. We can pray with Paul in Ephesians 1.17, the spirit of wisdom and revelation come in. 
Help us to see things. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says, The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. No one can comprehend except the Spirit of God. Jesus Himself said in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Spirit to anyone who asks? I wonder if you can just kind of ask your way, ask for the Spirit for the next few minutes while I show you just a few more things in this prayer. Paul prays that we'd be able to see four things, and I'm going to give them to you right quick. The first thing he, said, he prays that we would be able to see is the certainty of our hope. He asks for this in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And where are you going with this, Paul? In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. He actually gives you the outline for the whole passage and what comes next. Also, the riches of the inheritance. And he's going to talk about Jesus in the end. So it's a prayer for the eyes that are in our heart to be opened up so we can see things. The heart is the center of man's being. It's the control center for all of reality. As in our physical bodies, our eyes, they allow us to take in our surroundings. So it is in a spiritual sense. Our hearts allow us to sense what's going on all around us. We need spiritual eyes to be open to the truths that are around us. And that's what he's talking about here. And specifically, he goes for this idea of hope. Here's an idea for you this afternoon. How we think about and talk about the word hope in English throughout Western culture is very different than how Scripture talks about hope. We talk about hope, not like we a Redeemer thing in here. We talk about hope across Western culture in this way where I don't know whether this outcome is going to deliver or not. I'm hopeful that it will. We talk about hope in the sense of the new Tottenham Hotspur manager thinking the boss is going to be able to come in and finally sort the club when the problems are actually in the office. We talk about hope in these terms. Oh, well, I hope it would happen. I actually have no idea. I have no idea about all the contingencies that are involved in this equation. I'm just blindlessly believing maybe it's going to come true. We think this relationally sometimes as Christians, don't we? Oh, God said He's going to be there, but I just, I just hope He'll come through. Actually, deep in our hearts, unsure, unconfident. And Paul's coming in. Paul's saying, I pray that God would open up the eyes of your heart and He'd give you a certainty about this hope. So you could be different and you could be distinct than the other people who are around you. See, whereas we, whereas we in Western culture, we talk about hope in terms of something we want to happen or we want to occur. Biblical hope has to do with things that will happen and they will occur. That God is going to finish what he started. That glorious prayer that David read to us and explained to us last week, that all the realities in the text from verse 1 down to verse 14, that those things will come to pass that he is the one who chose us. He didn't choose us because there's anything worthwhile in us. He chose us. He chose us to be holy and blameless. And though we feel like we're just wallowing around in the filth and our sin and our bad habits and our addictions, he will bring new things to pass. He will do it. Romans 5, chapter 2 talks about, Romans 5, 2 talks about the hope of the glory of God. Hope is the opposite of despair. It breathes massive winds of optimism into situations. And Paul wants us to feel our hope that can transform our situations. Christian, think about how practical this is for you. There is a way to navigate London, a city of cynicism and despair with hope, with a confidence 
that God said he is doing things in your life and in your story, and he will surely bring it to pass. It's possible to move through the streets of this town, surrounded by people, wishing and willing for different things to come true, and you can walk around with a dignified sense of certainty that you belong to God, and he will accomplish his in the end. His agenda is justice and mercy, and though all around us looks like it's running amok, he will be the one to clean it all up in the end. We don't think like that naturally. Even we don't Christian like that naturally. Paul says that's something that's true. It's there, but you got to press in and pray, God, would your spirit cause me to be able to see in such a way where I can move around with hope in who you are and what you're doing who you are and what you're doing in my life, who you are and what you're doing in my suffering and my pain, who you are and what you're doing in this community, who you are and what you're doing in my family, on my block, in my house. God, help me to see, because I look at this, I can't see. I'm just, I'm just feeling tossed around. God, do something where I just know. The second thing he asked for is in verse 18. He says, I pray that you would grasp our worth to God. And this is gonna be a bit weird, so hang on. Our work to God, three things, hope, Riches and power. How about the riches and inheritance bit? Second thing that Paul's prayed for is that the eyes of our hearts will be open so we can see the glorious inheritance of the saints. Follow me. He is not saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be open so you can see everything you got coming for you in the end. There are other parts of Scripture that do that, and they're great. This one's different. He says, I pray that the Spirit of God would do such a work of enlightenment in you where you would walk around and you would understand, you, my friend, you, my friend, you, my friend, you are God's kingdom treasure. You are his inheritance. Not you have stuff coming. You got loads. You got everything that belongs to Jesus coming your way in the end. It's going to be all right. And in this moment, he says, this will help you live. This will help you navigate a culture that used to be stained by idol worship. You need to be able to walk around here knowing you are loved by God. He loves you. He could have anything he wants and he chooses to have you. You are loved by God. I pray that God would open up your eyes so you could see your worth to God. You could see that you are the riches and you are the inheritance of God. Uh, F.F. Bruce says it like this. Paul prays here that his readers will appreciate the value which God places on them. And can we just take a moment right here just to shrug off anything in us because of our background or a theological tradition that tries to like threaten this? God loves you. God values you. Can you just sit in here and receive this for a moment this afternoon? His plan to accomplish his eternal purpose through them as the first fruits of the reconciled universe of the future in order that their lives may be in keeping with the high calling that they may accept in grateful humility the grace and the glory thus lavished on them. Follow the logic of the text. Let's chop it up together. Whose inheritance in this? This is his, this is his glorious inheritance. God has an inheritance coming to him. Yes, he does. He has that which he did not already possess, and that's you and me, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying this is gonna be a big help in learning to navigate a culture that used to worship other stuff, walking around with a sense of confidence that I am loved by God. 
Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Isaiah chapter 53 says, Jesus looked ahead from the cross. He saw the future that his offspring and he saw the future offspring that his sacrifice would produce, and he was satisfied in it. In his greatest trial, trial, in his moment of greatest pain, you were the living hope that kept Jesus on the cross. It sounds scandalous. Us? This? Yes. This ought, to, this ought to stun us in a way where every once in a while, it ought to cause us just to get lost in all of this. Where we just think to ourselves, he owns, he owns heaven. He owns earth. He owns numberless worlds. He owns stars. He knows about the flight patterns of insects. He owns it all. And I, we, are this distinct worth to him. This beautiful wave of humility comes through our hearts when we can see it. Yet it's met with this sense of divine confidence as well that it's nothing about me. It's about him. He chose us in him to be holy and blameless. Ephesians 3, 18 to 20. We're going to see this in just a few weeks' time, so I'm not going to preach this part of the book to you, but I do just want to kind of reflect on this with you. Paul does something. He's, he's trying to reflect on who God is. He's trying to talk about what God's up to, and he's talking about the love of God and the love of God and the love of God and this, this powerful apostle. This Indeed, he's a theologian. He just has this moment when he's just trying to think like, and how about God's love? Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. Just reflect on the, the four courses with me. How long is God's love? The Bible says it's from eternity to eternity. He chose you from the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. Therefore, there was never a day when God did not know about you, and he loved you. How high is God's love? Psalm 103 tells us is as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's a long way up. That's an intense love. It's the feeling of standing on a beach and being lost in the immensity and the wonder of a high sea. It's, it's very, very high. It's the feeling of being overwhelmed at how big the universe is. It's the feeling of being a child first learning about moons and stars and other planets and just thinking that's a long way away from here. And then you fill in that long way away from here with the love of God. And that's what he has for you. How wise is God's love? It literally controls every molecule in the universe. It marshals every electron and proton around. There is not one stray atom in all of existence that is outside of his control. It is a, it is a wide, wide love. How deep is God's love for us? It's so deep that he chose to reach all the way down into the, the filth and the trench of my sin and my rebellion against him in order to save me, indeed, us. Paul says it surpasses our ability to explain it's a love that you need to feel in your heart. So how do you know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? How do you know what you cannot know? It's a certain kind of knowing. It's an experience. And could it be that what our hearts are actually aching for and indeed longing for is to experience what many of us know? Could it be that what some of us need across this room, this isn't everybody, but what some of us really need across this room isn't to sit and to devour more information about God, but it's to sit 
and to ask that God would cause some of the information that we already have about him to become true, to be like a sunburst in our hearts. Some of us need to learn more, and we're going to get to that in another one, but this is about those of us that need to experience more. See, when we experience this love, only when you experience does God become real to you is there a fullness about God that seems to take over. So let me give you these next two, and I'm out. God's resurrection power at work in you is the third thing he's pleading for. Three themes, hope, riches, and power. And Paul's saying, I'm praying, I'm asking for this specific thing that you, church, you would know the same Spirit of God that rose Jesus from the dead, that same Spirit is active and available in your life. Some of us are trying to fight sin in our own power when resurrection power is available to us. Paul layers up stacks and stacks and stacks of synonyms as high as they'll go. He's exhausted the language that's available to him. He wants us to see that there's a power, a stupendous power that is available It's the kind of power that can take a child of hell and make that child a child of heaven. That kind of power is available to move with you in your everyday life now. That kind of power was available in Ephesus back then to take people who were learning to follow Jesus and not to be a male or female temple cult prostitute. That kind of power was available. And Paul was saying, I pray that your eyes would open and you'd be able to see what's on offer. That is some tremendous power. It's the power that brought creation into being. It's the power that flung stars all around the universe. It's the kind of power that's able to put planets in certain planetary orbits. It's the kind of power that's able to make space be space. It's the kind of power that's able to make the ocean be the ocean. It's the kind of power that's able to make roots grow and plants come up. It's the kind of power that can gather a group of people in a neighborhood where once there was not a people, now there is a people. It's spiritual power, resurrection power, and it's available Not only creation power, it's resurrection power, God's power, kind of power to raise the dead to life is available. And Paul begins, he's saying, look, I just hope you can get your mind around hope because it's kind of in your head, but it's not in your heart. You need hope in your heart. I hope you can really get into God's riches because you think you understand some stuff about who God is and what you got coming and how great he is. It has not affected your heart. I pray this gets into your heart. And he says, listen, you're going to struggle with some stuff. You're going to deal with some stuff. The forces out there are powerful. What you need to know is the resurrection power of God is at work in you, and it's more than what's in the world. You're going to need it. And then he closes with this, the finality of Jesus' rule. There is so much about this prayer we we can't even touch. I mean, I've, I've really tried to explain three words to you for the last few minutes. He goes on to talk about the finality of Jesus' rule. There's so much more in here. And if I could just say this, we need to be a people that live our lives convinced of the finality of Jesus' rule. We need this when we have to live against this strong tide of secularism that just pulls against us. We need this in a city that's going to celebrate various pride parades and traditions. We need this as we sit in here this afternoon on Father's Day weekend, some of us in this room not having dads that were there for us, not having husbands who were there for us, children growing up wishing, I just wish dad was there. We need to be able to walk around as a group of people firmly convinced of this. Our king is going to have the final say in all of this.
He's saying, I just pray that you'd be able to sense this. I pray that this will become your navigating structure. I pray you'll be able to move around with this. He's talking about the power that's in the exaltation of Jesus in verse 20 and 21. Completed the resurrection. He became the first fruits of all who would follow. Jesus began his ministry of intercession. He became the dispenser of the Holy Spirit. He's exalted above everything. Therefore, in verse 22, he has absolute lordship. In verse 23, he has specific lordship over the church. And what we got to figure out, friends, is how to be a group of people who pray and pray and pray and depend on the Spirit to open up our hearts to where we can move about a neighborhood like Queens Park and something as broad as London. And we can walk around with a sense of hope, riches, power, and confidence that our King owns all of this and He is going to sort it in the end. Otherwise, we're going to sit down and we're going to try to do encouragements with one another that are going to fall way short. We're going to try to build one another up and it's just not going to work. We have to live by faith for a season until Revelation 22 comes along and that faith will be turned to sight. And then we will see the fullness and the realization of all that's promised to us. My friend, Jesus is building his church in the world. It's the focal point for all of his activity. He cared a whole lot about it. He indeed bled and died for it, making it our great privilege to invest here and to be about this and to build our weeks around this. It's the power that's available, the power that's at our fingertips. We need to see this. Beginning to conclude here, um, this theologian named Armitage Robinson, one of the greatest scholars in the book of Ephesians out there, he said it was Paul's spiritual vision that made him first and foremost among all the other apostles. It was this fact that other people were trying to know things about God, and this one, he was praying for the eyes of the heart to be open so we could see and experience God that set him apart. Isn't this the great need of our hour? There's lots of knowledge in this community. There's, there's more knowledge coming. As people in here are talking about starting to study for seminary degrees and on and on, it's beautiful. Can we not agree what we really, really need are just a few truths about God to be activated in our hearts? Maybe it'll give us what we need. I begin to conclude with this. Natalie, let me invite you to come on up. We're gonna have the Lord's Supper in just a moment, so anyone who helping serve that, if you'll actually head to the back. Let me ask you this question. Don't be distracted by people moving around. Think about this. Can you see? And I... I do care, but I am not focused in this moment. I am not focused on your ability to know things about God in your head. I am focused on your ability to experience things about God in your heart. Can you see? Does your heart see Him? And if not, that's fine. You're in the right place. This is the opportunity to ask and to pray the prayer, Lord, help me see. I ask you to begin with a thought experiment. We conclude here as well. Imagine living life then without one of your senses. Just imagine how difficult it would be to navigate London without your senses. Imagine how difficult it would be to see this place for the first time without being able to see. Paul is saying when it comes to your spiritual life, some of you are trying to move through this thing and you cannot see with the most important organ. You cannot see with your heart. And there's great hope. Because John chapter nine tells us about a person. He was actually born blind, never been able to see his whole life. And he had this encounter with Jesus and it changed everything for him. 
Jesus actually gave him his sight. He gave him the ability to see with his eyes. And his testimony very simply became, once I was blind, but now I can see. You know, when you become a Christian, some, some of us have to be converted to this truth again. If you're like me, you'll have a season of actually getting lost in the books and lost in the intellect of the whole thing. And you actually lose touch with your ability to actually see things with your heart. It's part of my story, my testimony now. I actually had a time, I was a follower of Jesus. I was studying to be a pastor and I actually kind of lost it. I lost track, I lost focus, I lost sight. And Jesus came along and he brought me back. He opened up the eyes of my heart again. And once I was blind and now I can see. I wonder if anybody needs to be able to pray that prayer afresh. If that's what today could be about, if that's what this summer could be about for you. It's available if you'll just ask him in prayer. It's not crazy. Just the person who believes in God, praying that the Spirit of God would do a work of enlightenment in people he loves. And I've been praying that for you this week. And I'm gonna be praying this for us this summer together. That you and me both, we would, of course, we would know lots of things about God. Let's not lose that. But that what we know about God would become so real for us in our hearts. It would be the difference between walking uh, down the street with some father out of a sense of duty, just holding the child's hand, the child trusts, the father's for me, father's got me. It'd be the difference between that sort of moment and that sort of interaction. And then the father turning, bending over, picking up the child, squeezing the child tight, kissing the child all over the face and looking at the child saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. What was known in the head, what was available all along becomes experienced in the heart. My friends, that's what is available to us. So the supper is coming right now. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me invite you to take one of these and just hang on to it for a quick moment. If you're not a follower of Jesus, let this basket pass you, but do not let the offering of this moment pass you by. We're gonna take this together. Thankfully, uh, our God is is not some uh, book. He's not some philosophy. He's not some set of facts that we just gotta kind of keep straight in our head. Though, though he is a person and he is real and he's true and he's personable, he chose to interact with us in a sensory way. And maybe to conclude our time together this afternoon in the word before we sing and we pray, our God, he chose to relate to his people uh, through their actual taste buds as well. Maybe by being able to sit here and be able to sense our God in a different way with a different set of senses, maybe even something in this moment could help trigger the eyes of our hearts to be open to his great love for us. On the night that Jesus was uh, gonna go out and give his life to save his people, he had a common meal with them. And on the table was bread and on the table was wine. And Jesus sat there and he said, tonight I'm gonna make a new covenant with you. And he took the bread and he said, this, this represents my body that's gonna be broken for you. So a non-awkward pause while I put the mic down and we open this thing up and we get a hold of it. Jesus, who loves his people with a fierce passion, he knew him from the foundation of the world. He chose them. They didn't choose him. 
just looks at a group of people he loves. He said, this, my dear friends, this represents my body and it's gonna be broken for you. You take and eat and remember me. We eat. Throughout the Bible, covenants are made with different signs and seals. And Jesus took what was available on the night. He took wine. And he said, this wine, it represents my blood. And it's going to be poured out for you. So this afternoon, church, we take, we drink, and we remember him and his provision. Praise God, our God didn't choose to relate with us in a way where it's abstract, but it's real. You can see him and you can taste him. You could have reached out and you could have touched him. The psalmist would say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not talking about some sort of head knowledge, but an experiential relationship with God. Here's my invitation to you. Whoever you are, whatever your journey, whatever your story, whatever your background has been about, it's an opportunity to pray into this next moment that God would indeed open up the eyes of our hearts where we would be able to see him. And if you can see him, then from that place of faith, you can pray now that God would open up the hearts of your family members, that God would open up the hearts of your flatmates, that God would indeed open up the hearts of London so we could see him with our hearts. And in seeing him, our lives would be transformed. We have a, a prayer and ministry team that's going to be available right here. And there is, there's, there's no special anointing on these people. I wish, like we're praying for that. Like we're, we're getting there, but like we're, we're normal people. We got sins and struggles just like you. But I will tell you something that there's often something in the act of obedience and humility and surrender by feeling like an impression from the Lord in an intense way and just saying, man, I'm, I wanna take like just one more step. If you would want to walk over here, we will pray for whatever you're dealing with and whatever you're carrying right here. And can I just beg you, can I just like plead with you as a pastor? Like, I don't get paid differently based on this. Like there's no performance related to this. Like this is about you and I want this for your joy. Do not leave here today without being prayed for if God is working on your heart. Do not resist him because the same sun that melts the ice, it bakes the clay. And we don't get out of moments like this neutrally. He is pulling on some of you. He is inviting some of you. He is calling some of you. He is indeed giving sight to some of you even right now. Come, let's minister together. Let us minister to you. Let's come and let's pray for all of us. Let me invite you to stand where we are. We're gonna sing, we're gonna pray. We're gonna have some moments to be with our Lord.